The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Hey, it's Martine. Your most valuable Black Friday purchase starts at 99 cents. Right now, you can get an all-access digital subscription to The Washington Post for just 99 cents for four weeks. And that will cover you for your first 12 weeks. You'll get our groundbreaking interactive stories, the most in-depth breaking news, our fantastic well-being and climate coverage, and so much more. If you already subscribe, thank you so much. It's one way to support the work you hear on the show. And if you know someone who loves a subscription, you can't beat this price. You can find the link in our show notes and episode description. And tonight I have the high privilege and distinct honor of my own as the first president to begin the State of the Union message with these words, Madam Speaker. 16 years ago, Nancy Pelosi became the first woman in U.S. history to serve as Speaker of the House. She was a big reason why Congress passed the Affordable Care Act. She oversaw two impeachments of President Donald Trump. She pushed through historic legislation to address the climate crisis. And on Thursday, she announced that while she'll remain in Congress, she is stepping down from Democratic leadership. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. She broke the glass ceiling that's Paul Kane. He covers Congress for The Post. Beyond that, beyond um, that history-making side of things, she has been an incredibly powerful figure that has ruled the House of Representatives in, in this sort of iron-fisted way. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, November 21st. Today, we follow Pelosi's journey through Congress to the top of Democratic leadership. And we ask Paul about who is likely to rule the next era of Democrats in Congress. For you, Paul, was this announcement a surprise? No, not at all, but yes, completely. Hmm. Um, no, it, it wasn't a surprise because the— Four years ago when she, you know, reclaimed the speaker's gavel, she had actually said, I will pr I will really most likely only serve two more terms. This is the end of those two terms, four years. Um, also, she is 82 years old. Uh, she comes from a, a family of, of great wealth. They have a home in Napa. Uh, th there are lots of things for her to do other than just mm -hmm. staying in Congress. And – she had accomplished almost all that was really in her in her mind and in her agenda, so it made sense. Um, but at the same time, we have gone through this now for 12 years. When Democrats lost 63 seats in historic drubbing in 2010, most people thought Nancy Pelosi was going to run for the hills and retire. But not Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi sticks around for eight more years. Mm -hmm. And some of those years, she was in kind of a low 
point, Democrats kept losing, kept not winning the majority. Um, but she stayed and fought her way back. I mean, speaking of low points, I think you could argue that this is a pretty complicated and, and maybe even sad time for her to make this decision to step down. Um, Paul, I know that you talked with her shortly after her announcement about some of her thinking and why this was the moment when she decided to step down. And can you talk a little bit about what she said to you? There were about a half dozen reporters that they allowed to come in and meet up with her after she delivers her floor speech on Thursday afternoon. And, and we got to sort of really go through both her own history and her own decision-making. So, to be continued. Let's just be brief. Do you have any questions? She made it pretty clear um, without saying definitively that she was leaning toward retiring as leader um, for a good portion of the year. It seemed to be going that way. And, of course, something that definitely weighed on her as she considered uh, her decision was the late October attack on her husband, Paul Pelosi, who, while Nancy Pelosi was back in Washington, an intruder broke into their home and uh, got into a scuffle with Paul Pelosi, hit him with a hammer, and caused him very, very serious injuries. How is he doing, by the way? He's, he's struggling. He has a really bad head trauma injury. My husband is doing okay. It's long. It's really hard. It's so I can imagine that that also played a role in her thinking of just the trauma that she and her husband have endured in these last couple of months. It did. There was a part of her that initially was was angry and it almost had the opposite effect and wanted her to – she almost decided it, like she would not give them that satisfaction mm. of knowing that somebody had attacked her husband in trying to attack her. But she feels this guilt because this happened because this, you know, troubled person was trying to hurt her, not him. And she's the one now who's fine. She has this security detail of police officers that follow her everywhere. If she had been there at their home, this person never would have hurt her husband. So the traumatic effect of that being in our home has such an impact on my husband and me, but also on our children and our grandchildren. And so she's now dealing with that, her own bit of trauma from that and that guilt. And I think ultimately that was a, a, a pull to tip in the direction of retiring from being leader. You know, in recognition of... Pelosi's history as the first woman to be Speaker of the House, I think it is worth going back a little bit through history to get a sense of who she is and, and how she got here. I mean, she was elected to Congress in 1987. Mm -hmm. um, and I think at this point, she has become synonymous with the Democratic Party establishment. But before that, I mean, what characterized her career? What made her this lawmaker who really rose through the through the ranks and figured out how to wield power. So you can't start the story with, as Nancy Pelosi. You have to start it as Nancy D'Alessandro. Growing up in Baltimore uh, with a father who served a few terms in the House of Representatives before becoming the mayor of Baltimore, she learned sort of big city, East Coast, ethnic politics in a way 
that uh, that that was very foundational for her. Um, but in college, she fell in love with uh, this gentleman. She was at Trinity College in Northeast Washington, D.C., and fell in love with this uh, gentleman, Paul Pelosi, who was at Georgetown, across town. And, um, you know, could have probably just uh, settled into Baltimore and had almost a similar route into power. But they headed west, and they went to his hometown in San Francisco. Uh, they had five kids very quickly, and you know the idea of a political career for her was just not plausible. So she was in local circles doing local liberal activism and also becoming a fundraiser. Um, and eventually she became the California Democratic Party chair. So she had a name in national circles as a great fundraiser, but then her one of her mentors, Sal. Burton fell ill, and as she was, um, you know, basically about to die, she looked at Nancy Pelosi and said, "You should run." Wow! And that was when uh, her career launched in 1987. And so it's those two things that she sort of blends together that that take her into her, you know, what we see in the next 35 years. It's the East Coast, big city mayoral way of how to build a coalition and and force bills through a city hall, woven together with that West Coast liberal mentality and also connections to the money centers of, of the future Democratic Party become mm. San Francisco Bay Area, Los Angeles, even Seattle. It becomes that, that West Coast thing. Um, that she was able to to meld together and become a powerhouse um, in in Congress, unlike any other. And how did she end up as speaker? She made it sound as if she never really wanted to be speaker. That it was like she. I just, don't buy that. No, her very like the first week she arrived in Congress, her new mentor in Congress was George Miller, who was also a Bay Area congressman. And he, the famous story is he ushers her into a dinner with this group of young up-and-coming Democrats. And George Miller brings Nancy Pelosi into the dinner party and says, this is Nancy Pelosi. She's going to be the first woman speaker of the House. And so she spent the next 14 or so years in the in the rank and file building up her, her chits and, and doing some really tough jobs. She did a stint on the House Ethics Committee. Nobody wants to do that job. That's like mm. internal affairs. Yeah, but, you're basically asking yeah. questions or investigating your yeah. colleagues. Nobody um, likes that. And, and she did that. She worked on the Intel Committee, which really got you – know, you really begin to learn what the federal government is doing uh, overseas and sometimes at home. And on the Appropriations Committees. Um, she took the, a, the money center. Yes, understanding how the flow of money goes into which agencies and and that level of power. So she was kind of ticking off the boxes of what you need to be able yeah. to know what you need to know to yeah. make the case that I and, can be in charge. And then she reached a point where she realized she wanted to jump into leadership, and it was the 2000 election um, when Democrats really thought they were going to win back the majority, uh, and there would be an opening. Problem was they didn't win the majority back, and it's four more years of just prepping. A lot of anti-Iraq war energy began to build up by 2004, 2005, and they win back the majority in 2006 uh, for the first time in 12 years, and that is the moment where she gets to claim the gavel and 
break through the glass ceiling. And then let's fast forward to the Obama years and the Affordable Care Act. Um, we talk about uh, that as Obamacare, but I know that Nancy Pelosi played a huge role in that. And and what was her role? Why is she so important to the passing of the ACA? Pelosi is critical to it because she's sort of the ideological center of the law. And without her, the entire coalition would have fallen apart at various points. There were liberals that were demanding something way more far-reaching, something similar to what we now think of as Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All. There were conservatives who, in the Democratic caucus who didn't want to go that far. There was a disruption with a, uh, a Senate special election that threw things all aflutter. And Pelosi was the spine of the party at that moment, and she kept pulling the pieces together, kept pulling Barack Obama and Joe Biden and Rahm Emanuel and Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer together. Without her, the bill doesn't become law. The yeas are 220. The nays are 215. The bill is passed. And then what about the Trump era? What was her role uh, during that time in essentially opposing Donald Trump? She starts off um, in December of 2018. They've won the majority. They have this meeting at the White House about a government funding bill. And Trump tries to basically tell her that she doesn't have the votes. She doesn't have this power. Um, he shouldn't even be negotiating with her. And she basically tells him, never question my power. Hmm. Never question my power. And I, I believe she even was pointing at him. And then um, and then Trump basically says, yeah, if we shut down the government, blame it on me. I'm going to do this. I, and, and so lo and behold, just before Christmas, the government shuts down because there's no funding bill approved. Republicans were livid. Absolutely livid because Trump just somehow couldn't keep his cool in front of this incoming woman speaker. And Pelosi starts off in this sort of power dynamic ahead of Trump. And and she had this way of, of just irritating him to no end. But she also was trying to hold back her most liberal flank who wanted immediately to start impeaching him. Our colleague Joe Heim um, did a Q&A with her in early the spring of 2019 um, for the Washington Post magazine, and she told Joe he's just not worth it. That was her response about impeachment. And yet she ended up impeaching President Trump not once but twice. There was a a three-day period in December of 2019 where one day they passed the new North American trade deal. The next day, they impeached Trump. And the day after... They passed a huge, massive government funding bill that included all sorts of policy stuff. Then those the the two days where these massive bipartisan things got done, and then the day in between, they impeached Trump. (laughs) It was wild. So you feel like that's a kind of testament to Speaker Pelosi's ability to get things done. Yeah. And also, again, to like the, the way that she maneuvered with the Trump administration, it infuriated Republicans. Senate mm-hmm. Republicans, Senate Republicans especially, were just furious. They always thought it wasn't just Trump. They thought that she just pulled the wool over the eyes of people like Mnuchin 
and that she kept getting the better of the Trump uh, admin. And then in the Biden era, what did we see from Nancy Pelosi in terms of her achievement over the last couple of years? Pelosi's advisors look at the last two years uh, under Biden as her most skillful. Her final two years, she was sitting on a, a margin of, at most, four votes to spare. It was one of the smallest uh, majorities of the last 40 or 50 years. And yet they were able to still do really big things. They started off uh, by getting a $1.9 trillion economic and health rescue package through uh, solely on Democratic votes. Uh, throughout that summer and fall of 2021, they did an infrastructure bill in which they got some bipartisan support. Uh, and it was ugly as heck. And Democrats pulled it off this time with just 220, 221 Democrats and just 50 uh, in the Senate. So in a lot of ways, what she was able to do in these last two years with such slim margins uh, was more skillful, more tactful, more everything than uh, what she was able to do in years prior. So considering all of that, considering the iron fist that she had in leadership and her ability to maneuver, to strategize, uh, to keep her party together, what is the Democratic Party losing with her no longer leader of Democrats in the House? I mean, what will anyone else be able to fill her shoes and take up that role as effectively as she's done it? Well, the, the short answer is no, probably not. What she was able to do on a legislative front was to be able to go throughout all corners of her caucus and sometimes into Republican circles if they need Republican votes and understand how to build a coalition. And she, she walked us through this on Thursday. She called it a kaleidoscope. You just turn that dial and one day all of you will be a opposing all of them. Then the next day, it'll be all of them opposing all of these. And then it'll be some conglomeration. But you never want to diminish the strength of anybody because they're a source of strength for you on the next vote. So today, you're going to lose. You're going to be unhappy. You're going to be out on the fringe. And you're not going to like it as the rest of us compromise on something and get something done. But you're going to vote with us today. We're gonna, you're going to vote with us today because tomorrow you're going to be on the winning side of an issue. And as long as you vote with us today, you're, you're good with me because then when, you, you know, tomorrow— When it's, when it's your thing, when it's your thing, make sure we get it done. Yeah. She understands that better than anybody who's held the position in certainly the last 65 years, if not ever. After the break, I talk with Paul about the possible candidate in line to replace Nancy Pelosi. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. 
So let's talk the future. It seems right now the frontrunner to potentially replace her as, uh, I guess, House Minority Leader, since the House, the, mm-hmm. since Democrats have lost control of the House, um, is Hakeem Jeffries. He's the favorite to replace Nancy Pelosi. Lauren, what do we know about him? Well, he's considered heir apparent to Pelosi. He's represented Brooklyn and Queens since 2013, and he is currently chair of the House Democratic Caucus. He would potentially be the first black lawmaker to lead a party in Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a lawyer from central Brooklyn. He's a self-described progressive. What are his chances of actually being elected minority leader? I think they are very, very good. He's not in the Progressive Caucus, but he's not in any way, shape, or form a moderate centrist type at all. He's very much a liberal, but more like a traditional mainstream liberal. He draws support across the board. House Democrats get stuff done. We deliver lower costs, better paying jobs, safer communities. We put people over politics. And and he is a member's member. He has been what's called the chair of the Democratic Caucus. It means that you re, you run meetings, you run uh, policy retreats, you you're the person who talks to members. You're doing a lot of member services. They get to know you really well, and uh, that is the way these elections are are won or lost. That people have to know you. I mean, it seems like it's in the Pelosi model of like you gotta you gotta do a lot of work behind the scenes to Absolutely. get people on board with you before you even think about. Talking publicly about wanting to do this. Exactly, exactly. So I wonder for Jeffries or for whoever gets this job, what it is going to be like to try to maintain control of the Democratic Party. I mean, you have the squad, which is incredibly powerful itself, this progressive group that includes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, Rashida Tlaib. I mean, it seems like they have a lot of power. And I wonder, like, is the Democratic Party in the House going to be able to unite going forward, considering this wide range of opinions and sensibilities within the party? Pelosi had that stature. Pelosi is always able to look at the squad and say, I was you. When I was 32 years old, 33 years old, I was just an activist marching in San Francisco. I understand where you are, where you are now. But I'm telling you where you want to go is in this direction because this is how you actually get legislation done and influence things. Hakeem Jeffries doesn't have that stature. He's Mm going to have um, as his lieutenants, Catherine Clark in Massachusetts, likely to be a minority whip, and Pete Aguilar as caucus chair. They're likely to be the three top people. Combined, they have been in Congress for 27 years. Hmm. 27 years. Nancy Pelosi herself has been in Congress for longer than that. 35 years. So it seems like there is going to have to be a lot of catch-up for yeah. the members who are going to be likely leading the House Democratic Party yes. going forward. It is, it is going to be a very, very difficult thing. And, um, you know, they're, they're going to have to learn on the fly. Paul, thank you so much. Anytime. Paul Kane is a senior congressional correspondent and columnist for The Post. 
That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Ariel Plotnik produced today's episode. It was mixed by Sean Carter, and it was edited by Lucy Perkins. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.